Well, good morning. I want to uh, remind you that next Sunday is our deadline for uh, returning our Glenview food boxes. I appreciate uh, those who have um, already returned those, and so uh, we'll be uh, distributing those uh, the week of the 10th. And so if we can have everything back by next Sunday, that would be great. Uh, You can still donate uh, towards the gift cards through next Sunday, and we will be doing, uh, the children will still have that opportunity also uh, later on in the service. Uh, to be able to contribute to that. So I uh, just want to bring that to your attention. And I am excited about the kickoff for our winter Bible classes. And I appreciate so much uh, Eric Schramm and his efforts in, uh, in coordinating and organizing and explaining this to us and preparing us for this uh, you know, and working with our ministers and our elders uh, to coordinate uh, this, this effort uh, to strengthen and grow the congregation through our Bible classes. And if you arrived only for worship services today, you missed out. You really did miss out. And you're missing out on one of the most effective ways to deepen relationships, to, to bridge those, those, uh, those generation gaps, and to strengthen and to encourage the foundation of, of a congregation. And so we're all striving to attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's our hope with this. Because you can study the Bible anywhere. Obviously, you know, as Tom mentioned this morning, you can study it on a device, you can open the pages, you can be sitting at home, you can be driving in the car, you can be on the internet, you can study the Bible anywhere. You can only strengthen and build and promote and encourage relationships by being together. That's the only way you can do that. That's the way God designed the church. And if you have not received an email uh, letting you know what classroom you are assigned to as we do this teacher rotation, you say, well, I didn't sign up for anything. That's okay. We signed you up. And so you are assigned to a room. And if you did not receive that email, there are some lists on this back table uh, uh, to my right and your left uh, that you can see that this morning. If you have any questions about it, you can see Eric, you can see me, you can see Jonathan or Oren. And we'll make sure you get in the right place. <coughs> so happy Thanksgiving late. Uh, we had an unexpected Thanksgiving uh, this year in the, in the passing of Tressa's Meemaw. And so we shared Thanksgiving on the road at a Cracker Barrel in Tennessee with about, I don't know, 150 other people who were all in the lobby at the same time waiting to get a table. We didn't know anyone who was there outside of our little five of us there, and we didn't know who was going to show up. We had no idea who was going to walk through the door, which is probably a similar experience that many of you had during uh, your Thanksgiving and have had sometimes some point in your life at a, a family meal, a holiday meal. Sometimes you're hoping that Cousin Eddie doesn't show up, and you never know when that's going to happen, or, or you're hoping that Aunt Whoever can't make it this year. Maybe she didn't get the invitation, you know, or perhaps there's a, a branch of the family tree that you'd rather forget, or maybe you never talk about just doesn't come up, you know. Matthew, in his writing, gives us a glimpse of the dysfunctional family gathering that would be at Jesus' holiday family table. It's really remarkable. If you would read, you know, sometimes we skip over the genealogy. It's fascinating as you look at this and see who the people are in the bloodline of, of Joseph, who this is this earthly father of Jesus. And so, uh, you know, you've got a prostitute, you've got an adulteress that is mentioned in there. You've got an incestuous relationship. You've got failed kings. And it's like, good grief, you've got enough black sheep to fill a hillside in Palestine. And so as you read through this list, and sometimes you look at a family line and you think, how did he manage to turn out so good? 
you've done that, right? Or how, how does she end up that way? You know, when you look at everybody else that's in the family, how did she survive that mess? But as Christians, we believe in Romans 8 and verse 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to what? His purpose. God's purpose. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Don't we know this? We read this and we say, yeah, we know that. We're going to begin a journey this morning for the next few weeks through one of the most moving stories in all of Scripture. and It has all the elements of a, of a love story as you read through it. It's got tragedy. It's got loss has despair, it's got romance, it's got triumph, hope, loyalty. It's got everything that you set your DVR for hoping to find on the Hallmark Channel in December. But you don't have to because you're going to get it on Sunday morning. So I just encourage you to, to be here for that. The book's called Ruth. little short, tiny part of the Old Testament. Ruth. It's not just a love story spread out over these four chapters. It's a story within a story. It's a story that's part of a much greater story, a bigger picture that we talk about a lot, of which we too are part. We're part of this big picture. And so it's a story within a grand epic tale of redemption, God's plan for redemption, how, uh, this tale of how God is redeeming a people for Himself and bringing people from despair to delight and turning hurt to hope. It's a beautiful story. And you and I find ourselves in the middle of that story. And some of you have read Ruth before. For some of you, maybe it's been a long time, you know, since you've perused those pages. And let me encourage you, though, don't be like those people. Don't be like those people in the house who, you know, when you when you open up a book and you start the book, you go, "Oh, this is good. How does it end?" And so you flip to the end, you know, and you want to see, "Oh no!" And then you go back and then you read back through it. Don't be those people. I want to challenge you this morning to live in the tension of this story week to week. Live in it. I want us to feel the tension of not just what the original reader heard, but what these people living this felt as they wondered what, what is going on as they walked through this journey. I want to challenge us to do that this morning. Let's begin in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. As Tom read, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Judah. And so when you read... A story, you look for certain elements. You look for clues. And these elements arise in the very first verse here. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. And so the very last verse before you get to Ruth, just flip back a page or scroll back to see what's right behind it. It sums up the whole book of Judges. When you look at Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, the last words written in the Chronicles there says, in those days Israel had no king. Each man did what he considered to be right. So basically, the book of Judges is this cycle. There's no king and so in the land, and so everybody kind of does what they see fit. They're kind of ruling themselves here. Everybody's kind of you know, running rampant, and there's sin among the people, not just the people of God, but also the pagans in the land. There's sin in the, in the promised land, this land that God had given them. And this is before... King David, it's before Solomon. It's a time where you know, everybody's doing their own rule. And so there's this cycle in the book of Judges. So people are engrossed in sin. And as a result of, of giving in to their sin, they find themselves being attacked. They're attacked by enemies. Because God brings these foreign nations, these foreign peoples in to, to punish them 
to get them back on the right track. And they cry out for God. And so what God does is He raises up a judge. He raises up someone to help deliver them from their enemies. And then the cycle starts all over again. And so you're just spinning around. And we come to this book now. This book which takes one story out of the middle of all of that going on. This time period. And it brings it to light. And so during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Judah. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to live as a resident foreigner in the region of Moab along with his wife and his two sons. If that person gets elected president, I'm leaving the country. That's, that's the mindset here. If this happens, we're out of here. You know, we're going to somewhere else. And so this famine in the land of the people of God, which is particularly interesting because Bethlehem means house of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. It's barren. The people of God in the promised land of milk and honey are starving to death. And so, a man goes from the people of God and he takes his family and he turns his back on the land, on this promised land, this land God has promised. And he goes into the land of all places. He goes to Moab. Moab. Well, what does that mean? Well, Moabites began when Lot, Abraham, Lot, remember Lot was Abraham's nephew. And so Lot, the nephew of Abraham, had incestuous relations with his daughter in Genesis chapter 19. And so, the production of that caused a division between the Moabites and the Israelites. Those were those cousins. So this is a place where the, 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 the women were particularly known for sexual immorality here in Moab. And so a place also known for the worship of false gods and enemies of the people of God in Israel. This is where a Jewish man takes his family. It's a shameful place, this place of Moab. And so Scripture says now the, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi, and his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were of the clan of Ephrath from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the region of Moab and settled there. And Elimelech's name means, my God is king. My God is king. Which just think about it. In a day where there was no king, there was no king in the land, the first picture of a character that we have in this story is the picture of God is king. In those days, there was no king in the land. God is king. Went. How about that? Now, feel, feel this cold, brutal reality of life that's brought out by the author in verse 3. Sometime later, we don't know, sometime later after this fact, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. So she and her two sons were left alone. So her sons married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they continued to live there about ten years. And then Naomi's Two sons, Malon and Kilion, also died. So the woman was left all alone, bereaved of her two children as well as her husband. So just like that, in this ten-year span, you've got a nightmare summed up in three quick verses. You've got no details. You have no story, no background, just fact. One tragedy built upon another here and upon another. And upon another. And so Naomi looks around and her husband's gone. And she looks around and she's lost everything. She's lost her security. She's lost her family. She's lost her providers. She's lost her hope. And she's not only a widow without sons, but the daughters-in-law who were married to her sons, they're childless. They're childless. means no descendants. There's no one that's going to carry on her line. This is the curse of all curses in the land of ancient Israel. You think things are bad? 
This is bad. See, your name stops with you, and, and you will only continue as long as your family line continues. So here's the depth of despair here as we get to verse 5. Five verses in, and this is heavy. This is heavy stuff. Merry Christmas season. And yet, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope. So she decided to return home from the region of Moab, accompanied by her daughters-in-law, because while she was living in Moab, she had heard that the Lord had shown concern for His people reversing the famine by providing abundant crops. And so this is a a microcosm of what we're going to see in the whole book. All around her is darkness. And yet, in the middle of darkness, in the middle of hopelessness, a light of hope coming from where? Coming from God. A light of hope from God. His faithfulness. His provision. So God had visited His people in Bethlehem and He had given them food. God brought bread back to the house of bread. He had come to their aid. And so Naomi and her daughters-in-law, they, they head back to Bethlehem. And then she says to them, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, listen to me. See that exclamation point? She's trying to get their attention. Look at me. This idea here is like, you know when you're, when you're walking through the house and you've got you know, a child or a pet, and you just stop following me. You know, you've told them several times. So this is the point that we're at. There's been some conversation. But here's where we are right now. Listen to me. Each of you should return to your mother's home. May the Lord show you the same kind of devotion that you have shown to your deceased husbands and to me. And may the Lord enable each of you to find security in the home of a new husband. And then she kissed them goodbye and they wept loudly. But they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. And see, this is more than just a goodbye and God bless. Be careful. Obviously, there's, there's been some tension because you think about this, the Israelite-Moabite relationship. I mean, that's, what, that's what's been going on here. Can you imagine these, these, what these women have walked through together up to this point? Ten years of this. They've been together living as enemies, yet families somehow. But if they stay in Moab, see, they could find another husband. You know, perhaps have a family. They could, you know, they don't need to come with her. So imagine the emotions in this scene. And this is the same kindness that they have shown to her throughout all these years. And then so she says, almost hypothetically, look, even if, even if I were married, which I'm not, and even if, even if we had children, if I had other sons, are you, are you guys going to wait around for them to, to get old enough where they can take care of you? I mean, let's think through this here. It says, you, you come with me, you have nothing. And you stay here, and perhaps, probably, you have family, you have hope, you have a future. So stay here. Just stay here. And then she drops the implication. See, here's the fact. The Lord's hand, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And the implication is if you stick with me, the Lord's hand's against you too. You see what He's done for me or what He hasn't done for me. The same thing is going to befall you if you hang around. This is a pretty convincing argument, at least for one of them, because in verse 14, again, they wept loudly, but then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to her. She clung to her. That's the same word that in Genesis 2 describes how in marriage a man and a woman will leave their families and will cling, cleave to each other. That's just, this is the idea here. 
Ruth latched on. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with you. And Naomi says, look, look, your sister-in-law, she's going back. You need to go with her. She's going back to her God. She's going back to her land. You need to go with her. And in response, Ruth gives one of the most memorable speeches in all of Scripture, I would say. Two short verses here. Ruth replied, Stop urging me to abandon you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will become My people. And your God will become My God. And wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I do not keep My promise. Only death will be able to separate me from you. And can't you just hear the, the orchestra music in the background here swelling up? And I, I find it so interesting. These words are often used in wedding vows. I mean, you think about this. This is a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law. <laughs> I mean, you know what I've never heard at a wedding? I've never heard these kind of words spoken to in-laws. I've never heard that. But that's not happening today. But it happens here. And so this is, this is one of those moments in life where everything changes. There are moments in our lives where we make a decision that alters everything else that's to come. And this is it. See, she's leaving behind her land, her family, everything that's familiar to her. She's leaving it. Her religion, her gods, her security. She's giving up her future completely to this widowed, childless woman. In an ancient Near Eastern thought, where you were buried and among whom you were buried, had implications for afterlife. I mean, you think, you know, nowadays we say bad company corrupts good morals. Well, back then, it's bad burial is going to mess you up. You know, you had to be careful who you were buried with and where you were buried. So she's saying, I'll be buried among you and your people. And your God is going to be my God. I'm committed to you. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to dissuade her. So the two of them journeyed together until they arrived in Bethlehem. Now you imagine yourself in Naomi's shoes for a moment. You're walking back into Bethlehem. You've been gone a while. You've been gone some ten or so years. And so this is a place that your family turned their back on years ago. You left town. You went. Not only did you leave town, you went off living with pagans. You were literally sleeping with the enemies. And so you lived among the Moabites, and now you're coming back. Not only are you coming back, but you're destitute. Mm -hmm. And see, not only is it hard enough to come back to the land you left, but you're coming back without a husband. You're coming back without your sons. The only thing you have is this Moabite daughter-in-law. It's like you're coming home with trash. You can imagine the tension as Naomi steps into the city. You think this town wasn't a buzz when they saw her coming? Yo, yo, is this, is this Naomi? Hey, Naomi! Woo! And Naomi means pleasant. The name means pleasant or lovely. And she said, don't, uh-uh. You don't call me Naomi. You call me Mara. Because the Sovereign One has treated me very harshly. I left here full, but the Lord has caused me to return empty-handed. So why do you call me Naomi? Seeing that the Lord has opposed me and the Sovereign One has caused me to suffer. Just rub it in. Because I'm a different person now. I'm no longer pleasant. I'm bitter. 
I'm bitter. I left here full. Having everything I needed. Everyone I loved. And I've come back here totally empty. And you can imagine the tension that was in this group listening to this. You can imagine that. But you put yourself in Ruth's shoes. <laughs> Standing over here at the side. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes. You're coming home with Naomi into the city. You know you're coming into the city with undoubted prejudice. You know what you're coming into. You stick out and everybody's turning their eyes to look at you. There's a Moabite in the camp. Who didn't close the gate? Who's watching? But you know this is part of what you risk. You knew that this was this is going to be a reality. And now it sinks in for the first time and everybody's staring. Because they're, they're shocked that Naomi's back and then they're bewildered at who she's brought with her. A Moabite woman. Because she is now a picture of the misfortune of the Almighty. You are the poster child for God's wrath. You are a symbol of the Lord's affliction as you stand beside Naomi. See, a family left the land of promise and they traveled to the land of compromise. But Scripture does not tell us, does not indicate that Naomi has suffered her hardship because of some sin in her life. We have no indication of that. See, people who follow God experience suffering and they experience trial. They experience tragedy. And now returning to the land of promise with a woman who has compromised, we left a land of promise for a land of compromise. We're returning to the land of promise with a woman who has compromised. She's forsaken everything she knows for what she does not know. But what she trusts in. And they return with two needs. They need food and they need family. And when everything seems foreign, when death comes to your family and the pain just won't seem to stay away, it just keeps piling on, and when despair sets in, we feel like there's no way out. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. We wouldn't even pray for a train if it would be something to put us out of this misery. And so draped in loneliness, when no one else understands, even those we love don't understand. Or maybe we can't find someone who will love us enough to walk through it with us, even though they don't understand. And maybe in our shame, maybe the things that we struggle with, we're not proud of, things we we struggle with or things we don't understand or maybe others would look down on us if they knew what we were going through and how we were struggling. When this circumstance turns that way, when this person says those words that, that change everything from this point forward, when all those things happen, our question is, is God really in this? Where is God? Where is God? Naomi's saying, I'm empty. i got nothing. And in this moment, she thinks God is completely gone from her, far away from her. In that moment, God is, is, is in fact laying the foundation for His greatest demonstration of faithfulness to her. But she can't see it. She can't feel it. And arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest began. Hint, hint. Drops a hint. Arriving in Bethlehem at the harvest. The beginning 
of harvest. A thread of hope. So there is a harvest that's coming. It's God's epic work of redemption. Now don't skip to chapter 4. Don't do it. But you know there's a reason that Ruth the Moabite ends up at the family dinner with Jesus. We know there's a reason. And just like Elimelech, we have wandered far away from God into a land of idolatry. Because in fact, we are Ruth. We have been Ruth. Born into a land of idolatry and immorality. Children of disobedience. Objects of the wrath of God. Deserving of nothing but God's punishment. Absolutely. This is where we find ourselves. And the picture we have here in the book of Ruth is this picture we have all over Scripture. It's a picture of a God who is pursuing His people in their sin, even using their sin. He uses Elimelech's sin to set this stage for His demonstration of His grace on this grand scheme that's going to change human history. See, this is, this is great gospel. This is good news here as God takes this sin and He nails it to, on His Son on a cross. He puts it there and He sets the stage for the grandest picture of His glory to all the nations. Sin from your past does not dispel hope for your future. And although we may not easily recognize it, we may not easily recognize God's attention and His action in our lives, He provides stories like Ruth to remind us, to assure us, as in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to His purpose. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed, to be shaped, to be molded to the image of His Son, that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Life is bittersweet. Don't call me Naomi. You call me Marah. But you will be Naomi again. That's the promise of God. That's the hope that we have in Scripture. That's the assurance that God gives us each and every day. Even when we can't see it. Even in, draped in the tension of this life. God has a promise, an assurance, a hope for us. And it's through Jesus Christ. And this morning, perhaps you're carrying that. And have been carrying that cloud, that darkness, that heaviness of hopelessness. In Jesus Christ, there is hope. The only hope for a dying world. Maybe you've forgotten that. We want to pray with you this morning for you this morning, to encourage you to be encouraged and allow God's Spirit to once again light your path. And if you are not a child of God, if you have not been baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, why do you wait? Why do you wait? Because there is food in God's house of bread. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And He offers that to all who would come. Will you make Him your Savior today? by confessing His name, repenting of your sins, and being baptized into Jesus Christ for forgiveness, to receive the gift of God's Spirit, the promise, the assurance 
of eternal life with Him. We're going to stand now and we're going to sing a song to encourage us to think about where are we walking with God? What steps are we taking to draw closer to Christ as He is pulling us to Him? Will you come this morning as one who is, has bread in front of them? Will you eat of it this morning as we stand and sing this good song?